Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate someone once asked me i think to sum up what chelsea's culture or philosophy was and i remember describing it fondly as chaos and trophies Will that allow the club to rediscover its identity, to establish a culture, to establish itself again as a consistent force year on year in the Premier League and in Europe? You can't tell me and really pinpoint what is the identity, what is the playing style, what is the structure of this Chelsea squad. You're listening to the King's Road Podcast, the pod that takes you on a journey exploring every facet of Chelsea Football Club, from the club's philosophy to why the club plays in rugby, with your host, Joe Tweets. Hello everybody and welcome to the King's Road. I am your host Joe Tweedy and I want to extend a very warm thank you to those of you who are joining me on this inaugural episode. Now the King's Road has been a kind of very long time I would say in the making sort of both in terms of planning and execution and is probably something that I've wanted to start many many times in the past but it's always been about trying to find the time and also the, the right opportunity. And in terms of the opportunity, for me, that kind of includes looking at the right platform and probably more importantly, the right people to collaborate with in that respect. In which case, you know, I would be sort of remiss to not mention the guys at London is Blue. So being able to work with Brandon, Dan and Nick and those guys in particular, I think they've, they've been, you know, incredibly sort of gracious in terms of giving me a platform over the past couple of years to discuss Chelsea, to give my thoughts and opinions on the club. And they're probably responsible, I would say, for giving me the maybe polite nudge that I've needed to venture off into my own little direction and start this little side project that I'm calling the King's Road. Now, before I get into today's episode, the sort of meat and potatoes, I wanted to spend a little bit of time kind of outlining what you can expect from the King's Road going forward. So I think it's important to start with kind of off the bat, this is not going to be a weekly podcast. And in particular, it's not going to be a podcast that looks at sort of the week to week happenings at Chelsea. So when we're looking at items, it's not going to be about sort of match reports or match previews and and things looking at sort of transfer windows and all that kind of stuff. Instead, I think what I'm hoping to offer or what I'm hoping to achieve is to provide some insight into some of the interesting topics that potentially surround Chelsea and and probably will also make Chelsea the club that it is. I am 
an absolutely enormous fan of the 30 for 30 series, this sort of wonderful ESPN series of podcasts that I think introduce people to storytelling via the podcast medium. And I think in terms of the content that I personally enjoy consuming, it sits very much in my ballpark. I mean, I love long form articles. I love long form podcasts. I think that ability to explore a topic over a period of time is for me, certainly things I, I massively enjoy. So with that being said, I think the King's Road, or at least the ambition for the King's Road, will to hopefully become, I think, a long-form Chelsea-style podcast that digs into various aspects and details at the club. In terms of my intentions of of how this is going to be delivered, I think there will probably be a mixture of solo pods. So pods where I will kind of ramble on for whatever period of time about a particular topic. Um, And I think I also have podcasts planned where I am able to tap into my network of familiar Chelsea faces. So podcasters, YouTubers, influencers, the whole shebang, as well as some industry friends. So we're looking at here, um, guys who work within the football industry. So football agents, scouts, coaches, whoever that may be as well. And the general idea, I think, is to try and give you something that is independent of whatever the, the current situation is at Chelsea. So you know, not really digging into the ins and outs of this particular week or a particular topic that's that's prominent that week. It's trying to give you some standalone content that I think hopefully will be enjoyable to listen to, but also importantly, um, serves as something that you potentially can revisit or, or really kind of dig into at any particular time. Now, in terms of sort of topics, a few that I have certainly working on in terms of research and, and production and developing these, looking at the academy and player development, looking at Chelsea's commercial strategy, scientifically, and I mean scientifically, determining the greatest ever Chelsea kit, and then digging into the rich tapestry of, of Chelsea's history. So things from you know Chelsea during the war to the 70s and 80s football culture, all of this sort of stuff. These are the sorts of things I want to focus on. Now, naturally, if there's something that you, the listener, want me and others to explore, please feel free to let me know. I absolutely want to try and deliver content as well that you guys are, are obviously interested in and potentially in terms of questions that you want to answer. You know, you may be sitting there at night wondering what is the historical significance of Chelsea featuring red accents on their kits or having red away kits? Or what is the association with red and and why is Chelsea wearing red? It's an Arsenal colour, it's a Liverpool colour, etc. Don't worry, I have you covered. And I think really whatever takes your fancy, you know, feedback is, is always going to be appreciated in that sense. Tonight, though, and I think for the first episode, what I've wanted to do is explore a topic that I think probably continues to fascinate fascinate me at least more than the most and probably influences the sort of wider direction of the club. And that is to to try and take a look at the Chelsea philosophy, the overarching philosophy at the club. How do we appoint managers? What is the recruitment strategy and squad building? How is this all kind of interwoven? I think ultimately in looking at Chelsea's philosophy, we are trying to sort of determine and answer the question, why is consistent success, and I emphasise the word consistent, why is consistent success harder to come by today than during the first half of Roman Abramovich's tenure at Chelsea? 2-0, no way back for Bolton, give Chelsea the title, 50 years on. It took them 50 years to win the title, it's taken them just 12 months to do it again. Jose Mourinho has been sacked. Antonio Conte is no longer the Chelsea manager. What we're seeing now is an official statement coming out from Chelsea confirming that Frank Lampard has actually lost his job. Chelsea have yet again sacked the manager. Lampard is out, Tuchel is in, but is he the right man for the job? 
I think moving into the the context of what I mean by a football philosophy is probably quite important at this point to give the the greater context of the rest of the episode. So when I talk about a philosophy, I'm not necessarily referring to a manager or a coach, so not like a play style or sort of a real, I suppose, kind of methodology in terms of coaching, etc. Um, what I'm looking at and, and what I'm referring to is like an overarching club philosophy. So a club has a strategic goal, has a strategic direction. They have principles and kind of guiding tenets that really inform them of, of what their sort of structure looks like over the next couple of years and how they try to adhere to and what they think success is and how it can potentially shape success in the future. And before really digging into the Chelsea and their philosophy and potentially lack thereof of philosophy and, and how the club has, has operated for a number of years, I wanted to touch on a few clubs and just outline really kind of their philosophies and sort of the success potential that they had. And when we talk about success, we're not always necessarily referring to, you know, winning trophies in the Champions League every single season. It could be about financial stability. It could be about sort of establishing a methodology around recruitment, etc. Um, but a culture and identity, I think, are the, the sort of principles at play, really, that we're, we're looking to capture here. We start, first of all, by looking at Borussia Dortmund. And they're probably one of the few clubs that really, I think, outlines their kind of intentions and their philosophy on the club website. And something that certainly caught my eye when looking at doing some research into Dortmund and how they operate, they have this tagline and they say that the youth concept in terms of their youth development policy, the youth concept is a cornerstone of their strategic direction. So Dortmund have realised that in Germany they have Bayern Munich effectively being able to dominate the market from a financial perspective, being able to buy better players and essentially using their position um, as sort of a monopoly of the, the German market per se to really sort of push ahead. So Dortmund have taken a viewpoint that to be able to compete with, with Bayern, they have to do things in a slightly different way. They don't have the ability to go and spend 70, 80 million pounds on, on players. Um, the, the goal really is to try and develop talent in-house. So when you look at their sort of track record over the past number of years, you know, it's, I think, a focus really on developing academy products, trying to cherry pick some of the best young talent, bring them in-house, develop them into household names. You know, you have uh, Mario Goetz, uh, Christian Pulisic, Rainer, Rouse, Mukoko, guys who have either sort of been part of this development cycle or currently part of this development cycle. And I think certainly guys that they have, I think, sold for, for significant sums of money in, in some cases. And, and obviously that money then returns to Dortmund, returns to the, the club in a, a fairly substantial way. You know, this is then extended, I think, by their pretty excellent, I would say, scouting network, you know, the ability to spot a Jaden Sancho and Erling Haaland, uh, a Dembele, and, and sort of look at those players and again, develop them potentially then sell those players for significant sums of money. You know, Sancho, Haaland, Dembele, etc., could generate 250 million, maybe 300 million euros in terms of fees. And when you look at the, the strategy, they also say that the realisation of transfer revenues is one of their strategic goals. And obviously, this is one that they regularly meet. So Dortmund, I think, have this fairly established philosophy in terms of youth development, in terms of being able to capitalise on potentially 
their ability to scout better than teams, to develop talent in-house. They have a particularly young squad. You know, how they go about nurturing that and, and making that squad become a, a powerhouse in Germany. And again, they, they still have the ability to, to make waves in Europe. And I think Dortmund are comfortable in, the, in this role. And I think certainly in terms of how they've, they've progressed, you'll see this as, as being something that they can continue and it's probably sustainable from their perspective. We move on to Bayern Munich in this respect. And I think very, very interesting to me, I was, again, looking into some, some information around their particular philosophy, you could say. And Matthias Sammer um, probably had one of the punchiest quotes or quotations that I've seen from a, a football executive. And he said that world class has to be our benchmark. And I love the purpose. I love the real, I think, clarity in that statement. And I think it certainly reflects with how Bayern are currently positioned in the European football market. Bayern are back. Back on top of the European game. Six times champions. I think it's this approach that really drives their recruitment. I think when you're looking at how they how they scout, how they try to find players, they're focused on the fact that they have an excellent squad and realistically there are a handful of players in the world which are obviously obtainable within their budget and are willing to move to Germany, um, but also that can actually significantly improve their squad. So they have this sort of best player available kind of methodology or mentality in terms of of trying to focus on this kind of small group of elite talents that they believe can improve the squad. And I think that what they're doing is they effectively ask their manager to basically get the best out of this excellent group of players. You know, they use their dominant position in the market incredibly well, hoovering up the best talent in the Bundesliga and cementing their position. They often buy the best players from their competitors. It's been one of the, probably one of the sad things about the, the Dortmund uh, Munich dynamic is Munich's ability and Bayern's ability to buy Dortmund's best players, not kind of when they feel like, but obviously they're they're patient. They're able to wait until Dortmund are uh, potentially in a weaker position due to contracts running down and all that sort of stuff. And I think from that side of things as well, what they are fantastic at is sort of taking, you could say, buying greats or sort of elite buying players. Um, and they place a massive sort of emphasis on hiring these these sort of figures, these these kind of deities within Bayern Munich. Um, and they, they place a big emphasis on hiring them into what is called the technical heart of the club. And the technical heart is a term that certainly I first came across when looking into Ajax and Ajax's philosophy. But it represents sort of the, the soul, the, the culture, the character of the club and is something that is brought into the business side, the footballing side of the, the club, the operational side by hiring in players who have felt success, who have lived and breathed the on-pitch, the footballing side of, of the, the club and how it has enjoyed success and taking those qualities and pushing them into the kind of business operational side. You look at Philip Lom's sort of current position and, and I've already mentioned Matthias Sammer and there have been plenty other examples of Brian hiring ex-players who potentially have that little bit of, of nous and class and have the ability to grow into that particular position. Barcelona, again, I think another very good example here, have like a three bullet point system, which I think is pretty simple in that they say that they want to A, win the largest number of possible trophies, B, do that or do so while playing the most attractive football, and C, also do that with the greatest possible number of players trained from La Masia playing in their squad. 
And I think it's certainly to me interesting to note that now they have kind of somewhat departed from that third point, that their fortunes have, have kind of changed for the worst. You look at the push to sign guys like Coutinho, you know, Antoine Griezmann, Usman Dembele, Suarez was successful, absolutely Neymar was successful, but some of these big money signings that they have made have absolutely not panned out in the way that I think Barcelona have intended. And since they have not necessarily been able to bring through the calibre of player that really the that sort of kind of late 2000s side was built around, arguably the best club side in world football history, um, they've sort of fallen away a bit. And I think, again, you can see this season that the, you know, that, that culture or kind of aspect that the identity of Barcelona maybe isn't sort of part of this present squad. And certainly to, to note, and I think something of interest is looking at how Manchester City have kind of basically leveraged this philosophy, this Bass Jacks philosophy with, you know, the City Football Group and how they are now, I think, incredibly well positioned for a potential Guardiola departure. They have, I think, now implemented like an overarching recruitment strategy and a profile of player that they're interested in that can continue this style. And also they have a very good idea, I think, now of the profile of coach in mind who can deliver this this style of football, this style that they have sort of cultivated. You can't talk about footballing philosophies and not mention Ajax. You know, they have this holistic, total football philosophy. But I think it, it sort of is reflected in the fact that, you know, all Ajax youth players, academy players, they effectively play every single position until they hit kind of the sort of under 15s, under 16s age group. And it's sort of at this kind of point in their career where they are given a sort of a set position in the club's 4-3-3 system and are then kind of moulded to sort of the specific profile and ideals that Ajax have said that they want to see from these particular positions in the first team. And, you know, their aim is certainly to try and graduate, you could say, two players into the club's first team every three seasons. And, you know, they place a very, I think, significant focus on retaining Ajax men, quote-unquote, in the technical heart of their club. You know, you've got Overmars, Van der Sar, Bergkamp, etc. Guys who have been at the club, have worked at the club, are still working there in some capacity in, in some cases. And I think in terms of, of Ajax, you know, the the interesting thing is that they, they go slightly beyond the the sort of aspect of developing young talent and, and, and having a real kind of set methodology on how to develop players. It almost goes into a play style, a system. It's really sort of the, the extreme end of having a footballing philosophy. Obviously, you know, we've seen it work for them in varying degrees, but particularly that Champions League run that they went on, that group of players that they brought through probably embodies what Ajax are hoping to achieve maybe every few seasons. And the last club, I think probably a little bit closer to home and certainly one of interest is Brighton. And yes, I did just say Brighton. You know, they have, I think, complete integration in terms of style, coaching style, playing style, profile of players, etc., from the first team all the way down to the under 11s, under 12s, whatever that may be. And I recently saw an interview with Steve Sidwell, also known as Chelsea's greatest number nine. Um, I think it was on BT Sport, a segment where he was saying that, you know, the manager fits into the mould of the football club and how the style comes down from sort of the football board into the first team and then further into the academy. And you look at how they've also recruited, you know, Lamptey, Basuma, guys who are potentially undervalued but fit these ideals. They're very, very, I think, astute pickups and kind of detail the the approach that Brighton are trying to take as a football club. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm not stressing that they are the most successful, that they are going to be winning trophies. 
But from their perspective, having this, you know, sort of back to front philosophy implementation of style um, allows them to, I think, try and try and compete or trying to get the most out of the 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 tools at their disposal. So those comments that I was made aware of by Steve Sidwell are probably better outlined by Dan Ashworth. Dan Ashworth being the former FA director of Elite Development and one of the creators of this England DNA concept. But he, in his role of technical director at uh, Brighton, really sort of digs into the the nitty gritty, the details of how the owner has set sort of a, a play style, a philosophy um, that filters into recruitment, that filters into youth development, that really encompasses the entire mechanisms that, that Brighton are looking to to utilise to kind of support their their ambitions. So this sort of clip that you're about to hear is from Dan Ashworth, um, kind of outlining what I was talking about with regards to to Steve Sidwell and probably doing so in a far more lucid and uh, cogent fashion. So yeah, please enjoy. I think the, the chairman here at, at Brighton, Tony Bloom, has got a vision um, about how he wants to build the club, how he wants the club to play, uh, how he wants to recruit players. It's about thinking a little bit differently, about producing young players, maybe recruiting a little bit differently um, and making our resources stretch a little bit further to ultimately try and get the club into a situation where we can compete into the top 10. But but obviously it's about staying in the Premier League first and foremost. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing here is certainly the 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 point of mentioning you know these number of clubs is that these philosophies these ways of operating the culture whatever you want to say they are all independent of the manager or the head coach the head coach is brought in to deliver the vision is brought in to deliver the philosophy of the club the clubs are not attaching themselves to the identity of the manager they're not attaching themselves or molding themselves to the style the the tactics of a particular coach you know, we look at Dortmund, develop talent, work with young players and a young squad. You know, they have, I think, largely correlated managerial hires in terms of style and profile from Klopp and Tuchel all the way through to the present day. There are very there are very significant similarities in terms of playing style and how they're trying to, to coach players and develop talent. Bayern are looking to provide the coach with the best talent possible and effectively telling them, look, we expect you to implement a winning style and system. And... When you look at their most successful hires, guys who have won European Cups, they tend to just be excellent man managers. They have a squad who are highly motivated, highly talented, maybe don't need the precise coaching nuance detail with a Pep Guardiola or somebody of that ilk. Maybe someone who just gets the best out of the coaching and gets the best out of the players in that respect. Barcelona, you know, we want to win with star. We want to bring through talent from Namazia. This philosophy led to arguably one of the most dominant periods in, in football history and certainly produced one of the greatest club sides I think that has ever played the game. Barcelona, the new champions of Spain, are the new champions of Europe. It's a treble in all. Ten years after United's own, and Guardiola has had a fantastic first season. Victory for him against the veteran manager. And we kind of end with Ajax, who are, again, as I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, the extreme end of this discussion in that, you know, we play 4-3-3 or we want to play 4-3-3. You know, these are the qualities of the players we want to see, you know, and you will bring through talent from the academy. And this is sort of the directives and the principles that we want you to adhere to. They are at the extreme end of the equation. But again, to their situation, to their profile, to their ability to recruit, this is a methodology that has served them well. And even yes, even we know recently has led to them being very successful in, in Europe in many respects. All of these clubs share the ability to not only set a vision, set principles, set a philosophy, but they have had incredible success and varying degrees of success, I should say, 
in terms of implementing a end-to-end system and set of principles and properties that have really sort of put them on the map in terms of European football and obviously domestically as well. This isn't to say that having a philosophy guarantees success or that you know philosophy is the be all and end all. But for the majority of, I would say, very, very successful clubs, both in terms of trophies and any sort of individual metrics that you want to track to in individual leagues, etc., the majority of these clubs will have guiding principles that certainly and importantly are independent of any manager or any particular coach who is managing the club. And to pick up on that Brighton point as well, a lot of these coaches who are hired you know, it's about the manager fitting into the mould of the football club. The manager is there to deliver the strategy, to deliver the vision. Yes, there will be different systems and different styles and managers and coaching, but the journey from A to B, you know, you can go different routes, but the A to B is still kind of predefined and preset. And that is sort of the ultimate destination that we are trying to end up to as a football club. How you navigate from A to B can be different for different coaches and different coaching styles, etc. But the end route, the end goal is the same. I think certainly when we look at exploring the Chelsea philosophy next, having that point, having that context is incredibly important. Have Chelsea always had a set end goal beyond merely winning trophies? And is merely winning trophies enough, certainly in the current context of where Chelsea stand as a football club? We're going to take a really short break just to hit some words from one of our sponsors. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, really hope that's us, and access to our community discord and e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, will help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all of the other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month. The same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com forward slash join. Check out the description box of this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com forward slash join. Come hang out with us. We love Blue Wire. You won't be disappointed. Someone once asked me, I think, to sum up what Chelsea's culture or philosophy was. And I remember describing it fondly as chaos and trophies, a little bit of a nod to wedding crashes um, and certainly definitely tongue in cheek. And I think when you look at the the first half of the Abramovich era, Chelsea have been sport for talent and certainly high character players. The change of scenery that a new manager brought was often the catalyst, you could say, needed to spark the kind of existing world-class talent kind of into life and really push them towards winning more trophies. And I think, you know, that core of players were often surrounded over a seven, eight year period with very talented players. Um, but the core quality members of that particular winning group brought an element, I think, of stability and, and quality to the squad. Now, once that really, really elite core of players aged and became the quote-unquote old guard, I think Chelsea started to replace them, but I think it was often virtually impossible to recapture 
both the ability that they were losing, but also the hunger, desire, the character, the internal Chelsea-ness and that, I think, strength and desire from that initial crop. Guys like Drogba, Cole, Terry, Lampard, Czech. You can go through the names, you know them very well. You know, Chelsea, I think, have moved from a team that regularly competed for the league and were always very, very deep in, in terms of a Champions League run to a team that really hasn't been able to sustain a push on two fronts for a number of years now. And I think, you know, we are now sort of at a point where we are a team who certainly, you know, in the past few seasons have finished on average about 30 points off the top in the Premier League. And for a club of Chelsea's stature and ambition for three years, finishing 30 points off the top is is not particularly, I think, a reflection of, of where we want to be as a, as a club. You know, looking back in the old days and having that nostalgia and all of those those good vibes, etc. Even if Chelsea weren't winning league titles, they were always pushing and competing invariably. You know, for the for the title. Equally, they were always competing. One of the most dangerous teams and one of the most feared teams to play in Europe. And that ability to really, I think, push on two fronts is, I think, what sets that group apart from what we've seen recently. Even Chelsea's title wins, you know, the Mourinho win and the the Conte win were both really, I think, enabled by a lack of European football in the second half of the season. I think Mourinho's Chelsea were beat by PSG in sort of early early uh, part of the second half of the season and kind of moved to the club playing the once a week really for the end of the season. And under Conte, I still think one of the biggest contributors to that Premier League title was the fact that Chelsea were effectively just playing once a week and could select the best group of players every single game and there was no rotation needed and that first 11 was was a side that could go on and push for a league title. So why have Chelsea recently fallen into a position where they are yo-yoing from being Premier League champions to falling out of the Champions League and not even being a consistent top four team anymore? Why has this been the case? I think when you look at the initial crop of world-class talent that the club had when they moved here, I don't think you can quantify the impact that the mentality of that squad had yeah, and I think only when they started to leave and, and the players that were being asked to come in and replace those those legendary figures, that the, the kind of disjointed approach that we've had to managerial appointments has only really become apparent once that talent has left and once that mentality has left the squad. So you put this in the correct context, maybe for younger fans or maybe people that, that don't quite sort of remember at the time, you know, Avram Grant, who by my estimations is one of the one of the poorest Chelsea managers in terms of CV, in terms of ability. He took Chelsea to a European Cup final pretty much on the back of how mentally strong and how good that group of players were. They, they managed to effectively get themselves to a European Cup final, despite the fact that their manager was not some tactical genius, was not some sort of otherworldly manager, just a pretty average guy that was sort of put in there as a, as a kind of placeholder. They still managed to get to a European Cup final. And I think the, the problem that we've seen certainly recently is that the club, unlike the, the sort of guys that we've looked at in terms of how they're looking to push a style and identity and then finding a manager to come in and sort of implement that, Chelsea have certainly recently, I think, maybe not even recently, maybe the past eight years, have kind of moulded themselves to the image of the incumbent coach. And they've never really committed, I think, to, to trying to set forth their own ideals on the direction so when we've kind of looked at the, the clubs previously, they have sort of at least a, a a post in the distance that they are trying to to push towards that they have an idea of how to get there. Um, 
with Chelsea, I don't think necessarily that the club have always wanted to or always have taken the lead and suggested, you know, these are the principles that we want to adhere to and these this is what we think success will be. And now we want to have a manager come in and then execute this vision and execute this plan. Now, when you look at sort of the permanent appointments, I think that this kind of moulding of the club to the particular manager becomes pretty apparent and pretty interesting to see. So if we look at things in sort of a linear fashion, you could say so permanent appointments that the club have made. You go from Andre Villas-Boas to Roberto Di Matteo to Jose Mourinho to Antonio Conte to Maurizio Sarri to Frank Lampard and now Thomas Tuchel. When you hear these names and particularly in that linear fashion, what is connecting the dots? I think the hirings lack any real sort of correlation when it comes to playing style, personnel preferences, overall footballing philosophy. And when you sort of view them in that sort of sequential order, you're even in some cases jumping almost from diametrically opposed styles to one another. This kind of leaves you, I think, with the sort of vestiges of vastly different footballing ideologies that are kind of permeating the squad. You look at AVB's 4-3-3, this kind of sort of free-flowing football that he was trying to play at uh, Porto to, you know, Dimitar's 4-2-3-1, which is very playmaker, number 10 heavy. You move from that into kind of Mourinho's palpable style with a, with a midfield double pivot of, of powerful players and being defensively solid and being a little less ambitious. You move from that sort of system to Conte's three at the back, which, you know, requires wing backs and an entirely different profile of player in the squad. Back to a 4-3-3 under Maurizio Sarri with very controlled possession and, and very, very specific patterns of play requiring in some cases specialist players to be bought, you know, a ball-playing goalkeeper, a ball-playing number six to Frank Lampard's more direct 4-3-3 with a more kind of, you could say, inclination to play vertically or try to play quickly. And then finally going to Tuchel's kind of mixture of systems and flexibility. Now, I am sort of oversimplifying things. I am trying to paint a slightly broader picture you can obviously pick into those details as much as you want but even looking at things in a cursory fashion and looking at things somewhat on the surface it's very difficult to see what the overall plan has been in terms of playing style in terms of how the club are trying to sort of push themselves forward in many respects i think and the point being that once you lose these exceptional players both mentally and in terms of their skill set once you lose that and the emphasis is on the, you could say, the philosophy, the coaching, the managerial aspect. When you have such a disconnected hiring policy and you don't necessarily understand where you want to be as a club, you're just sort of going for this sort of short term after short term after short term. It's almost impossible, I think, to build a squad and trying to position them for, for long term success. As I mentioned, you know, when your coaching appointments are kind of at times diametrically opposed or they are the polar opposites in terms of system in terms of style in terms of player profile you know players who look useful one season as wing backs i know you know they're no longer useful when you're moving back to a back four marcus alonso great wing back not a particularly good left back victor moses you know plays a season like kafu as a wing back and he's not a right back and maybe not good enough to be a winger and then spends the rest of his chelsea career on loan um you know possession-based players who are maybe unable to cope with the defensive demands placed on them in space and transition you know Jorginho potentially going from a system that suits him under Sarri to one that he looked very, very much out of his depth and uncomfortable in under Lampard. You know, midfield pivots versus, you know, lone defensive midfielders, different requirements for wingers, different kind of profiles of strikers. It's so, so difficult to try and build long-term success when you're effectively chopping and changing the 
the kind of profile of player that you need in that squad to be successful almost every 18 months to two years. And I think it breeds short-termism. And I think consequently, it puts an insane amount of pressure on the recruitment side of the business. Now, if you know that you need to hit the ground running as a coach, and I suppose in some cases that you need certain players to make your style work, you have to almost guarantee the success of those signings that you bring in to ensure that you keep your job. You may potentially at best have 18 months, 24 months to try and create a team that is almost immediately capable of winning trophies. You kind of therefore need instant starters to make instant impacts. And I think sometimes when those high priced players don't work out, you're effectively gone in terms of the job. And the next manager is sort of asked to come in and pick up those pieces. And the result of, I think, of this strategy, this short-term view, is kind of essentially the squad that we have today, which is this sort of hodgepodge of different profiles, different styles, different systems, and certainly different ability levels. I think certainly in my eyes, it does explain why Chelsea have been so far from competing for a Premier League title in the past three seasons. You know, these short-term snappy appointments are great when they work, but they kind of virtually require that absolutely everything is perfect in terms of coaching recruitment to to prosper. If you look at Conte's first season where potentially the recruitment was was bang on in terms of the profile of player that he wanted, regardless of all of the noise and the politics around what happened in his second season, the fact that Chelsea potentially didn't kick on, didn't get the right players to continue building the, the free-back system that Conte was looking to implement, almost a writing was on the wall then halfway through the season. And I think, again, that this is one of those problems that Chelsea have had is the inability to create a common thread, I think, between managerial appointments in terms of style, in terms of system, how it essentially leaves them with, as I've mentioned, a real mishmash in terms of the, the squad. You know, you have guys who can play left back, but maybe not wing back. And now we're back to a wing back system. We have centre backs who look better in a back three than a back two. We're trying to play a back two or, or sorry, a back four in some cases. And it's incredibly difficult to really generate that sort of long-term view. The knock-on effect of all of this is then actually looking towards the academy. Now, this is something that I will probably touch on separately in a, in a different podcast, but to give sort of a, an initial overview of, of what I'm looking at here, how can the academy develop young talent in terms of trying to, let's say, create players who are going to be first-team ready when they have no idea what first-team ready is going to be by the time that this player comes of age and is able to play in the first-team? You know, if you have a a 16-year-old who is a mercurial talent, who is precociously gifted and looks to be an unbelievable ball-playing holding midfielder, if in four years' time when he hits 20, you know, we've gone from a team that wants to play this sort of possession-based style when he is an absolute guaranteed fit to playing three ball-winning midfielders in midfield or having three incredibly physical guys, have you essentially just wasted four years of his development and have you really been able to set out a pathway for development for him? You know, it's it's incredibly difficult, incredibly problematic um, to have somebody who is incredibly, you know, and insanely talented at such a young age, but not really knowing what the the kind of the end goal is. What is the the end measurement? What is the measuring stick for this player to be a success in the first team? All of the characteristics that this player has that may suit them to a particular player or a particular style. Um, are they now redundant because we have a new manager who is a completely opposite personality, person, coaching style, ideas to the guy that we've been trying to develop this this young player to. I think this in many cases sort of reflects that the Chelsea Academy need to just try and develop the best version of a player 
rather than trying to fit them to some sort of ideals that a manager may or might not have in a, a particular viewpoint or a particular point in time. And it really does show that Chelsea, I suppose, or is, is why Chelsea often produce the best player they can. You know, the players they're producing are really great players, irresponsible, um, irrespective, I should say, sorry, of manager, of system, of style, because really trying to adhere to some sort of profile is is nonsensical. And then you look at the, you know, the the inability to to set that pathway for young players, and it is merely, I think, a knock on of, of the lack of real overarching philosophy that Chelsea have potentially displayed. And while yes, you know, the the chaotic approach that Chelsea have had has often and pretty much in most cases yielded trophies. I think Chelsea are either the most successful or the one of the most successful top two, three clubs in uh, in English football since Abramovich has taken over. That is an unarguable fact. However, you look at sort of recent trends and you look at where the squad is is sort of moving to and the talent within the squad, and it's difficult to see them replicating that, that success that they've enjoyed, at least when it comes to being a consistently competitive team. And again, this is not suggesting that having an overarching philosophy is some panacea that cures every single problem that Chelsea have as a football club or is some special kind of tool that the club can utilise to change the fortunes of what they are looking to achieve. It may, however, give them a measuring stick, give them a reference point as to what the club believe is, is going to deliver success. And it also give them, I think, the tools and the, you could almost say the GPS to measure and to direct everything in terms of football, football operations, recruitment, squad management, etc. in terms of getting to a, a position again where Chelsea are once again perceived to be one of the, the top sides in European football. We should not certainly, as a club, be in a position where we can win a league title one season, finish 10th the next season, win another league title, and then as soon as we are involved on more, more than one front, you could say, as soon as we are back competing in the Champions League, we should not be in a position where, again, we fall away and become this auto-run team. As I mentioned earlier, finishing on average of 30 points off the top in the past three seasons, that is not something that I personally feel is a reflection of what Chelsea potentially was during the, the initial, uh, you could say, first half of the Abramovich era, the Abramovich tenure. Um, and yes, it, it's certainly, I think, indicative of the the lack of overarching ideas, the lack of, I think, implementation, the lack of real vision. And I think certainly what we are going to try and tackle is what, what does the future hold for Chelsea in this respect? Are there changes? Will trying to establish some sort of philosophy, some sort of principles, will that allow the club to rediscover its identity, to establish a culture, to establish itself again as a consistent force year on year in the Premier League and in Europe? I think I'm I'm certainly at the point now where I will make the argument that Probably from, you know, 2011 onwards, yes, I know we have had immense success. We've won league titles, we won the Champions League. But from the, the AVB higher onwards, the the lack of, I think, real joined up thinking, the lack of real structure and direction has probably set the club back in terms of the, the profile of the club, where they want to be in terms of European football and the the position they've had at, at European football's top table for such a long period of time. And, you know, while that kind of elite group of players, I think, masked a lot of the kind of chaos and the, the drama in many respects that surrounded Chelsea for what felt like a, an inordinate period of time, that 
winning mentality, the trophy case, everything that sort of happened really sort of kind of, you know, put that chaos, put that lack of structure really to the side because it didn't matter. But as we now move into a new era, as we move into a a new phase, really, potentially the third phase of the kind of Abramovich era, asking the question and certainly posing the question at least about how the club can help itself by implementing a, a structure, by trying to be more in control of its own destiny. How can the club take the sort of pathway that has enabled many clubs in Europe to be successful, create the principles, create the philosophy, create the identity? And how can the club implement something and then sit back and ask a coach to execute it? Is this something that is going to bring the, the club success? Now, I think we're sort of moving into an area where it's about looking at sort of competitive advantages. And I am using a little bit of a, a banking buzzword or a business buzzword in terms of competitive advantage, but this is me and this is the podcast. So yeah, looking for the, the competitive advantage that Chelsea potentially have. Now, I think that the first move of bringing in Petacek was probably very underrated and in many respects, fairly low key. I felt people were kind of questioning the appointment. Was he a mascot? Was it sort of a tokenistic gesture? Was he going to have some sort of impact on the club? And I do feel in many respects that those questions have been answered, um, not emphatically, but I think he has been able to show people and certainly provide value in terms of you know, training and identifying targets. And I think he has a view and certainly an ability to implement a style around the club, a culture that is more in tune with the guys that he played with, the type of mentality, the type of, of winning sort of inherent power that these players had. And when we look at Ajax and when we look at Bayern Munich and, and other clubs who have this technical heart, going back to that technical heart term again, I think it's important to continue to try to bring through people into the club, whether that is on the coaching side of things, whether that is probably for me now, more importantly, on the football board operational side of things, who understand what it takes to win in the Premier League, who understand the type of culture, the type of mentality that it takes to to be a successful Premier League team. And when we sort of look at the, the Chelsea kind of methodology and what it could be and what it potentially should be going forward, I think you have to look at maybe maybe potentially three points there. And certainly these are the three points that I would argue should be the the tenet, should be the the sort of the the foundation of, of what Chelsea is going to become and how to be successful. Now, I think the utilization of Academy players to produce both first team caliber players, you know, your Hudson Adoys, your Reese Jameses, your Mason Mounts. Um, as well as, I think, squad members. So maybe you look at the Tomori, Christensen, etc., as valuable squad members. I think that should remain a, a focal point. I think then, once you kind of go beyond the, the foundation of trying to use the academy or continuing to use the academy to filter uh, players into the first team, use that conveyor belt of talent, I think then you're, you're looking to try to sign, for me at least, the most talented players or most talented young players, I should say, in the world in European football and trying to sort of blend those with the common conveyor belt. You know, Kai Havertz maybe hasn't had the year that people would have expected, or maybe potentially the year that people would have liked. But the profile of the player, the the notoriety of player, the stature of the player, that is the sort of young player that I'm referring to in terms of looking at the most talented young players. 
And then I th- kind of think finally that, you know, in line with these, these clubs that are looking at the manager to deliver the strategy, I think you're looking to try and find a coach or ask a coach to focus on the development, the molding of a young squad, the teaching of, of young talent, while trying to sort of restore Chelsea's ability to consistently compete for trophies. And I certainly think it was was prudent that Thomas Tuchel, when he came in, um, you know, there was many journalists, I think, in many articles mentioning that developing the the academy, developing players from the academy, developing the youth at the club, that was still very much a performance indicator or a key performance indicator that Tuchel was going to be judged upon in terms of the success that he has at the club. And I think that for people that see this as some sort of tokenistic or jingoistic or, or you know, England-centric um, sort of development plan, it goes way, way beyond that. The, the focal point or the, the requirement for developing talent from the academy and pushing them into the first team is really, from, from my perspective, to focus on to being able to deliver a calibre of player that means Chelsea no longer need to go out into the market and buy buy a Zappa Costa when you have a Reese James, a Tarek Lamptey, and you have all these sort of fantastic right-backs that you don't need to go and buy a Danny Drinkwater, a Bakayoko when you have maybe a Mason Mount coming through or a Ruben Loftus-Cheek or whoever it may be in midfield, you know, that you don't need to go and spend maybe 50, 60 million pounds on a young, talented winger because you have Cullum Hudson-Odoi, for example. The whole game plan here is to focus all of the resources, all of the money that Chelsea can spend every single season, which, you know, we spend a lot in the summer, but on average, Chelsea tend to spend between 100 and £150 million pounds in the transfer window. It's trying to focus that money on investing in top-tier talent, guys who are going to come in, compete, command a fasting place, and really elevate the quality within the squad. It's about pooling those resources and concentrating on maybe one or two absolutely elite players every single season. Instead of spending, let's say, 20-odd million pounds on an Emerson, 25 million pounds on a Zappa Costa, 35 on a Drinkwater, 40 on a Bakayoko, you know, I can go on and on and on with these mid-tier players that we are spending mid-tier money on. The idea being with the academy is that you try and bridge that gap of talent production. You say... We feel that we can produce players that either go on and, and like a Reese James and mount up potentially a Hudson Odoi, become first team starter potential players. Or we can produce players that maybe are here for one or two seasons, but they are of sufficient quality in terms of squad coverage, in terms of their role as a squad player. They can come in and deputise that we don't have to spend tens of millions of pounds on squad players who eventually sign on big money contracts are very difficult to move in the transfer market. Look at Danny Drinkwater, Zappa Costa. You can look at all of the players that we failed to shift over the past few seasons because of the contracts they're on, because of the money invested in them. We are trying, I think, to significantly reduce that, I think, mid-tier position within the squad and saying that for the most part, you know, we will only go and buy a squad player if we cannot or do not believe that we have the talent or the caliber of player or the profile of player within the academy, even players returning from loan to then go and fill those particular shoes. And, you know, as much as there is talent in this squad, and I do believe that there is a lot of talent in this squad, you know, we cannot escape the reality that this is a club that has finished miles off the pace for three seasons running. And to be perfectly honest, that does not look, you know, something that's going to change this season you know, barring an absolute miracle run from Tuchel, which is obviously not out of the realms of possibility. 
And I think if you want to keep repeating these finishes, you know, this up and down yo-yo kind of style that Chelsea have of maybe having one very good season and then sort of slipping back into the pack, we can continue really to adhere to this kind of managerial ideology that we've subscribed to for, for almost 10 years now. Know, adhere to the the manager or whims of whoever basically is sitting in the the dugout, whoever the current incumbent is. And you know, as sort of previously outlined, the fact that when we look at sort of managerial appointments, typically there has not been much in terms of a, a common thread, in terms of approach, in terms of favoured systems, in terms of personnel, in terms of the profile of players that these people like. If we want to continue down that vein, we will continue to have the same results that we've had for the past couple of years where it is impossible to to really develop the the overall profile mentality and talent within the squad because the the base level and profile of player changes every every you know kind of one to two years and it, it makes it therefore impossible really to to plan for the long term to even try and develop the players that you've brought in it's incredibly difficult to to promote a long-term culture a long-term vision when 18 months two years is is generally the point where things change at Chelsea so I think what we've seen is there are huge perils in terms of buying incredibly deeply into managers that we've appointed who have such identifiable playing styles. And I think largely the imbalance that, that we find in the squad in terms of profiles, and I think certainly in terms of the overall ability in the squad, it makes it very, very difficult for, for future managers to come in and then pick up the pieces. Again, if you look at the current squad, I know that I touched on it previously, but you can argue that we don't actually have a proper defensive midfielder in the squad, despite the fact that Tuchel has implemented a shape that really covers the weaknesses of the two players in the pivot. We do not have the ability, I think, at this moment to play a system that Tuchel really likes. He is a very big proponent of a 4-2-3-1. He is a very big proponent of a 4-3-3. But you need a specific profile of holding player. And it's not N'Golo Kante. You need a specific profile of player to play that position. And we do not have one currently in the squad. We have, you know, full backs, we have wing backs, we do not have a great variety of, or we have, a, I should say, probably too great a variety of centre backs who are comfortable playing in a back three, maybe not comfortable playing in a back four. Um, the the type of strikers we have potentially, you've got guys who are better playing in a two, guys who are better playing by themselves, um, wide players who are maybe better at running in behind, but better some players are better at coming and receiving deeper. There's no real continuity or synergy I would say in terms of how the squad has been built and I think while I'll say again that having a philosophy and having ideas and having principles are not some complete cure for the the way things have have sort of transpired for Chelsea over the last couple of seasons it certainly I think is a starting point and a foundation for the club to start to control its own destiny I think in a more I think a more manageable and a more sustainable way. You know, we have an incredible academy. We can use that both in terms of financial aspect, being able to sell young players for a significant profit. We have that ability to bring players into the squad so we don't have to spend money on these mid-tier players and focus that spending on really top-tier players to improve the quality of the squad. We should, in many respects, be trying to use the academy both for the ability to bring through players that identify with a club that have that inherent Chelsea-ness in their DNA, But equally, looking at it from a pure, pure business perspective, it reduces the the redundancy of of some of these mid-tier players on massive contracts who sit at the club, go on loan, never to be seen of again, etc. That mid-tier, that huge mid-tier 
um, that Chelsea often find themselves in, in terms of the, the sort of squad. And it's a, it's a phrase that I've used sort of many times before, but Chelsea has a, a squad full of squad players when it should have a squad full of superstars. And the way that I personally feel that you move away from that as kind of outline is to look at the, the approach for, for using the, the young players and then trying to target the absolute top end of the market. And I think now when we've seen Tuchel come in, I certainly feel that he buys into the philosophical side of what the club are asking for. The requirement, I think, to try and develop young players. The fact that they have, I think, in Tuchel gone for more of a teacher, somebody to to mould a squad and potentially to a playing style that I think is long-term, is sustainable. And I think those principles will, will uphold. And I think that they will probably be something that the club is looking to implement long term, potentially beyond Tuchel and, and, and certainly into the, the next X number of managers that Chelsea have at the club. Because it's impossible to have, I think, an effective recruitment strategy, a long term recruitment strategy, a recruitment strategy that actually adds quality to the squad every single summer without really having an idea on what sort of the eventual type of squad is that we are trying to build. And as much as Chelsea will try to, I think, not necessarily kid themselves, but certainly convince themselves that, you know, the league titles we've won, etc. that's more than fine. I think for fans, and I think certainly for the, the profile of the club, that that consistent success, the consistent challenging, the consistent quality, the ability to compete on two fronts is incredibly important. And, you know, recruitment can look poor, certainly in hindsight, but it, it definitely, definitely looks poor when you consider the fact that you're often signing players in one transfer window that potentially become redundant the next season because of managerial changes. We will only really be able to, I think, impart some sort of consistent winning philosophy, consistent winning principles, if the overall direction of the club is at least governed and, you could say, owned by those who are working in the operations side of things and those who are working on the football board. Because to build a championship calendar squad, you look at Liverpool, you look at how long it took Klopp to develop that squad, you look at City's consistent ability to, I think, identify pretty good players. Yes, they don't always hit on absolutely everyone, but when they do and when everybody's pulling in the same direction as they have been this season, you can see how building a squad that fits the profile of what they're trying to achieve actually makes success infinitely more achievable and infinitely more possible. So sort of concluding and looking at this in its sort of totality, you know, I think Chelsea now are in a position where the chaotic approach that we've had sort of historically, I think an approach that, as I've mentioned, I think has often been masked by the quality of players that we had. I think now we really need those at the club to to take ownership of, of what the direction of the club has been. And I certainly feel that pretty much since the appointment of Lampard and, and Czech being onboarded, this sort of youth-centred focus and I mean this in in a way of kind of what I've outlined previously in terms of not only producing fast team players but closing the gaps and filling the gaps in the score not having to spend money on on mid-tier players focusing money on on the top tier in the market that that is certainly a a cornerstone of what Chelsea could use as, as a springboard to catapult themselves back into the sort of the relevant picture you know in terms of both challenging for titles and being a team that people are not necessarily completely um, comfortable playing in Europe and having the, yeah, I mean, having the the direction set in terms of maybe the profile of players they want to implement, the style of football potentially, having that 
set to a point. It doesn't have to be as rigid as an IX. It doesn't have to be as absolutely set in stone. But having a, a an idea of what it is they're looking for in a fullback, what it is they're looking for in a box-to-box player, a holding player, a winger, a forward, whatever that may be, having principles that guide that recruitment will mean that we are certainly not going to be a position where we jump from having a team suited to a back three to a team that can't play in a 4-3-3, that a team that wants to play in a 4-2-3-1, back to a back three, back to a back four, having this massive change of profile every single season and eventually just having a squad of players who don't really fit a particular system. The one big criticism that I will have is I look at this squad and maybe this will something that will change under Tuchel. You can't tell me and really pinpoint what is the identity, what is the playing style, what is the structure of this Chelsea squad? What is the direction there? I think that point is probably the one that I want to end on because as much as we talk about philosophies and we talk about structure and, and principles and things of this nature, it ultimately comes down to the ability for the coach to deliver the vision, the players to buy in, the success of the club, etc. So I think ultimately what we're looking for here is to see some sort of continuation of this sort of youth movement, to see the club continuing to be aggressive in the market, target those top tier players, go for a Haaland in the summer, and then look at a coach to try and develop and mould and maybe create an identifiable playing style that the club can potentially look at and, and take tips and, and take hints as to terms of the profile of players that they want to, to move forward with. Because I think until Chelsea are in a position where they can plan three, maybe four seasons ahead in terms of the direction of the club, we're going to be in this consistent cycle of not mediocrity, but almost this kind of purgatorial state of not being quite good enough to challenge in the Premier League, not being quite good enough in Europe, becoming a little bit of just a quote-unquote team who finishes in the top four to really, I think, establish the club, re-establish the club as a European force, as a consistent Premier League contender, as a as a group, as a squad, as a team that can consistently challenge for titles. There needs to be, for me, some longer-term thinking, some more joined-up thinking, a consistent approach, a consistent focal point in the future to enable all of the recruitment, all of the talent development, all of the coaching, the entire team from, from first team through to academy, through to the football board, through to the operations, commercial, whatever it's going to be. But having that focal point in the future, having that philosophy, those guiding principles, I think finally allows Chelsea to create the consistency of approach that hopefully delivers the consistency of performance. And if you've made it all the way through to the very end, I want to extend a very sincere thank you. This is the first time that I have done anything remotely like this in terms of sort of a solo podcast. So I'm hoping that it's been at least relatively interesting and potentially informative. And I look forward to delivering the next one, whatever that may be. Until then, this has been The King's Road. My name's Joe Tweedy. Take care and I'll speak to you soon.